One of the remarkable things about many animals is their uh, sense of direction. Before I came to New Hope, I served a church down on Kentucky Avenue. One of the men in that congregation raised and trained homing pigeons, so I went with him on one of his trips. He brought one of his birds out to a place where it would never been to before, many, many miles from home, and turned it loose. And the bird came back to the same exact cage. I mean, I was just amazed by that pigeon. How did it know where to go? How did it keep from getting lost? I mean, you talk about remarkable instincts. You talk about a tremendous sense of direction. Or think of the monarch butterfly. Every year in the fall of the year, it'll fly all the way from Canada down to Mexico. And in the following spring, it returns. It comes all the way from Mexico back to Canada. And when it comes back to Canada, not just anywhere in Canada, it always returns to the same exact spot. No matter how many storms it encounters along the way, no matter what kind of adverse weather patterns happen to get in its way and block its path, the little butterfly never gets disoriented, never gets thrown out of the track. It always knows exactly where to go. How do you explain that? Or how about that stray cat that shows up on your back porch one day and, and decides to adopt you and your family and say, I'm counting on you to feed me, protect me, take care of me. Well, that's not something you're willing to do. So, and yet, in spite of all you try to do to shoot away, scare the critter off, the cat, the cat just won't go away. I mean, persistent little fella. So one afternoon is a last resort. You grab the cat and you put it in your car and you drive 50 miles out in the middle of nowhere, dump that cat in some vacant lot and you take off. And you think, <laughs> that's that. Never see him again. And yet what happens? Two weeks later, you open up the back door and there he is. And you're thinking to yourself, how did he do this? How did he find his way back here? Well, many animals just have this incredible sense of direction. Now, here's the other thing that amazes me. In the Bible, when God wants to draw a picture and show us what we're really like, what kind of an animal does he compare us to? I mean, does he compliment us and say, you know what? You're a lot like that homing pigeon or that monarch butterfly. I mean, no matter how much you go astray or get off track, I never have to worry about you. Because you always know how to take care of yourself. You always know how to find your way back home. I just really appreciate you. Or does God say, you know what? I'm really proud of you. Because no matter what kind of adversities you encounter in this world, you're a, lot, uh, you're a lot like that stray cat. You're just so persistent. You never let anything get you down. You never let anything discourage you or hold your back without any assistance from anybody else. You always have a way of reaching your destination. You know what? I'm just amazed by you. Is that what God told us here in this book? Uh -uh. When God wanted to show us the truth about ourselves, he made this comparison. He said, you're like sheep. <laughs> the one animal that has no defense mechanisms, no natural way of protecting itself. I mean, unless there's some kind of sheepdog hanging around or some kind of shepherd standing by, those sheep, they're in lots of trouble because they can easily be snatched by any kind of predator that wants to use them for their next meal. And the other thing about the sheep, no sense of direction. You do to that sheep the same thing you tried to do to that stray cat. You, you drive it out some 50 miles away and turn it loose and leave it on its own, on its own, fending for itself. Will it ever find its way back home? Never. So what exactly is God trying to tell us when he describes us like sheep? God's telling us in order for sheep to survive in this world, they have to be led. They have to have somebody watching out for them, governing and managing their activities because they're never going to find the right place on their own. That's true for me, too, and for you. Never going to find my way home unless the Lord shows me. No way I'm going to be able to fix that marriage or overcome that bad habit or find my niche in this world, you know, the place where I was really made to fit, unless God helps me. 
I can't make it on my own. This life is in all kinds of trouble unless it's God who's watching out for me. God who is constantly guiding, protecting, and showing me the right way to go. Well, that's one of the reasons why I just love the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon that has ever been preached. Because one of the interesting things about this sermon is before Jesus ever opens his mouth and speaks a single word, we get directions on how to use this sermon, how we can benefit from it. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, it says, And Jesus went up on a mountainside, and he sat down, and his disciples came to him. There's the key words. They came to him. And it was only when they came to him that he began to teach them. See, the Sermon on the Mount describes, here's what happens when you allow Jesus to teach, when you allow Jesus to influence your life, when you allow Jesus to impact you, then here's, here are the results. Here's what your life is going to begin to look like, look like, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. In other words, here's the interpretive key, the key to making this message work. Here's how you take these words and get it in here. It's all in the way in which you approach Jesus. Do you come to him with an open heart? Do you come to him with a willing spirit? Do you come and sit at his feet and say, Jesus, teach me. Show me the right way to go. I want you to take the lead in my life. My life's a mess without you. Jesus, I am here to learn from you. You come to Jesus with that kind of attitude, that kind of desire, that kind of yearning. Your life's going to be blessed. Well, today we take this one step further. When you give Jesus that kind of opening, that kind of opportunity where he can really begin to work in your life, not only is your life going to be blessed, but now Jesus is going to use you to be a blessing to others. Not only is Jesus going to make a big impact on your life, now he's going to use your life to make a big impact on the world around you. Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. It says, you are, get this, you are the salt of the earth. Not you can be, you should be, you ought to be. You are. All of a sudden, you know, because you're allowing Jesus to be the predominant influence in your life, now suddenly your life has taken on a whole new sense of significance. I mean, think about it. Understand the kind of world in which Jesus was living when he first was speaking these words. Everybody used salt. Everybody. I mean, even in the poorest of homes, somewhere in that house on that day, you'd find somebody using salt because it was used in so many different ways. From seasoning the food to make sure everything on the table would taste right. From packing and preserving the fish that they caught that day to make sure you'd have something decent to eat a week from now and you wouldn't have to worry about the meat going bad or the food decaying. In fact, one of the commentaries that I have on the Gospel of Matthew, you'll mention 11 different ways salt was used in the daily life of the ancient world. I mean, it's just an indispensable ingredient, absolutely essential. You couldn't function without it. Nothing more useful to have in that house than to have some salt because of all the different ways you'd use it through the course of the day. Some people use salt as an agent to help start a good fire so you'd have a way to cook the food for yourself and your family. Other people use salt when you mixed it with the right kind of ingredients to fertilize the soil so you could grow those vegetables in your garden. Other people use salt, again, when mixed with the right kind of ingredients as a way to kill weeds. And on and on it went. It's like they came up with a thousand or ways to use salt to make life better for themselves, to make life better for other people. It was indispensable. You couldn't get by without it. So here is Jesus telling these people, and telling us, when you come to him, when you become one of his disciples, you allow him to become the predominant influence in your life. Now, all of a sudden, your life takes on a value, 
a sense of usefulness. Now you become an extremely important part of God's plan to reach out and make an impact on this world. And when you step back to think about that, this is remarkable. When you stop to think about who Jesus is talking to, who's in his audience on this day? I mean, who is Jesus telling? You are the salt of the earth. Well, verse 3, he was talking to the poor in spirit. People bankrupt, empty-handed. They've got nothing worthwhile to offer. Verse 4, he's talking to those who mourn. And why do they mourn? Because they've lost so much. Well, what exactly have they lost? Go back to the last part of Matthew chapter 4. These folks have lost a lot. They've lost their health, lost their wealth, lost their voice. They're under the thumb of the Roman Empire. They have no say with the governing authorities. They have no pull or clout with the people who run in the world. They're like pawns on the chessboard. Other people moving them around at their whim and their fancy. And they can't do a thing to object. He's talking to the meek, verse 5. And understand how the word meeks work, not how we define it but how the Bible uses the word, especially in the Old Testament. This is a Jewish context. Often the word meek was used in the Old Testament to talk about people who got trampled on, treated like dirt, people just running over them, just stepping on them all the time, and they can't do a thing to stop it, just constantly be taken advantage of, and, and, and they can't do a thing to defend themselves. No, no power, no, no clout, no pull. And Jesus comes along and says, you... You are the salt. You're the agents God's going to use to change this world. You who right now feel so feeble and friendly think, man, what kind of difference can I make in the world? I have so little to work with in the way of resources. How could I ever make a difference? You who are constantly victimized by others because so many things have been taken out of your hands. There's so little in your life that you have any say over anymore. You're powerless. You're helpless. And yet you, Jesus says, when you come to me. And you become one of my disciples where now you allow me the honor to take the lead in your life. Now all of a sudden, because God's working here, now God's going to use you to change and transform this world. I mean, when you stop to think about this statement, you are the salt of the earth. It's so remarkable. When you stop to consider what Jesus is saying, and then you stop to consider who he's saying this to. So that raises this question for me. Why does God operate like this? Why does he use these kind of people to make this kind of impact? And for me, the answer is found in Jesus. This very truth, you are the salt of the earth. This very truth is demonstrated in his life. Consider how Jesus entered the world. How he chose to be born in a manger, a feeding trough, not in some royal palace. Why did he approach us like that? Well, I got an idea about this on HGTV, of all places. Home and Garden Channel. Now, guys... Please hear me out. I know a lot of you think, David, what are you doing watching the HG channel? It, ladies watch that. Please understand, I believe a man should be a man's man. I'm all for that. Eat nails for breakfast, that whole. I, I believe all the way through the Bible, the Bible encourages men to be men, to be real men. I buy into that 100%. So guys, understand that. But I must confess, I don't watch a lot of TV. Martha can tell you that. But when I do, one of my favorite shows is on the HG channel. It's this show called Fixer Upper. Chip and Joanna Gaines, they're this married couple living down there in Waco, Texas, and they will take these sorry-looking homes, these crummy places, ready to just fall apart, and they start to fix it up, and they transform it into something that just takes your breath away, and you think, how did they do that? And, of course, one of the reasons why I love to watch the show is Chip. Chip Gaines, guy's crazy. You never know what he's going to do next. All the antics he pulled, he's just funny. So fun. I mean, he just has me laughing all the time. And then the other thing, the guy's amazing. There's nothing he can't fix, the talent that guy has. Well, anyway, all that to say this. It was on that show, and I'm sure this is true of any show on the HD channel. It's on that show I learned this concept. 
In order for something to stand out, it's got to pop. That's the word they use, pop. It's got to have pop to it. In, a, in, other, in order for something to grab your attention, you've got to put it in the kind of setting where it's not going to be messed. You've got to frame it to its best advantage. So you put it in the kind of setting so when a person first comes in the, into the room, that's immediately what gets their attention. That's what immediately they notice and they begin to admire and they begin to appreciate. In order for something to pop, to grab you and just astound you, you have to put it in the right kind of setting. Isn't that exactly what God did with Jesus when he sent him to this world? Think about this. What if instead of being born in Bethlehem, this tiny village that most people would never find on a map, what if Jesus had been born in a much more prominent place like the city of Athens or the city of Rome or the city of Jerusalem? Well, you know what everybody would be saying about Jesus? Yeah, I can tell you why he made such an impact on the world. Look where he came from. Hey, anyone with those kind of advantages, right place, right time, yeah, I'll see what fate can do for you. And they would have missed the point. Or what if Jesus, instead of being born in the home of some peasant, was born in the home of a billionaire? You know, automatically, by birth, he's now a part of this financial destiny. What would everybody have been saying? Yeah, I know why he made such an impact on history. Look what he had going for him. See what money can do. Or what if he'd been born in the home of Caesar Augustus, the Roman emperor? See what political power can do for you? Or what if he'd been born in the home of some well-known celebrity? Well, yeah, I, I understand why everybody knew about Jesus, why he was so popular. Everybody's talking about him. See what fame can do for you. But instead of all that, what actually happened? He comes in poverty, weakness, total obscurity. And in that kind of setting, with those kind of circumstances, the only way to explain his life, the only way to explain his impact upon others is see what God can do. Isn't that exactly how Jesus wants to work with us? Isn't that one of the reasons why Jesus sometimes allows us to go through trials and hardships? Why sometimes he allows us to get caught up in this controversy or to engage, get engaged in this kind of conflict. And here we are having all these troubles and wondering what's going on. And yet in that kind of setting, God now has an opportunity to show the world, see what God can do when he's at work in this person's life. Even in our weakness, even in our moment of need, God can be glorified through us. Even in that kind of setting, you are the salt of the earth. Now, it's real important that you not forget, that you not miss the last part of this verse. Because in the last part of the verse, Jesus is making this point. In order to make a difference, you have to be different. Notice what he says. He says, you are the salt of the earth. Matthew 5, 13, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Now, if you ever went to chemistry class and you learned anything at all, you might be wondering, does Jesus really know what he's talking about? Salt is sodium chloride. It's a it never loses its chemical property. It, it, it never ceases being salt. It never loses its saltiness. So what exactly does Jesus mean? Well, in Bible times, salt was often gathered from the marshes and other places like that, places around the Dead Sea. But when they started to pull it out, this process that they went through, when they started to pull it out, it was always mixed with all kinds of other ingredients. And they would pile it high in a big mound there in the ground. And the entire mound looked white. And you think, oh, look at all the salt there. And yet only a small part of that actual pile, only a small part of it was the actual salt, sodium chloride. And then it'd start to rain. And when it would rain, the salt, the sodium chloride, very soluble. It's the first part to get washed away. Leaving behind this white, uh, sandy-like kind of substance. Again, it looked like salt, but all the actual salt was now gone. It looked like salt, but it wasn't. And this white, sandy-like kind of substance, 
it wasn't good for anything except this. You mix it with the dirt and the mud, and it turns everything rock hard, makes it like concrete. Well, in the first century world, most of the homes in Israel, they got the flat roofs, and for a reason. I mean, with a hot Palestinian sun at the end of the day, they got steps on the outside of the house, narrow streets, all these buildings together. Man, the only way to catch a cool breeze, the end of the day, you're finished with work, you came up there on top of the roof. Their roof was like our back deck. That's where you go to relax and unwind, visit with the neighbors. Hey, how you doing? How'd your day go? Here's how my day went. And it became the playground for the kids. Narrow streets, crowded streets. Nobody had much of a backyard. Homes and buildings put so close together. So the only decent place to play was up there in the roof. But here's the problem. On the roof, the roof's made out of straw and dirt. And you got to have something solid to stand on. So they took this stuff. It looked like salt, but it wasn't. The white, sandy-like substance began to spread it around, and when it mixes in with that dirt, it turns everything solid and hard. Now he has something safe to stand on. So when Jesus is giving this sermon, he's speaking, he says, and talks about being trampled underfoot. Everybody's sitting there nodding their heads. I know what you're talking about. And here's the point. In the first century world, it seemed like, it looked like the salt. You hear you have this big pile of stuff, and you think, boy, look at all the salt I got. And yet the actual part of the salt washed away. It seemed like salt could lose its saltiness. And so Jesus uses that image, that picture, to make the difference. To make a difference, you've got to be the actual salt. You may have a pile of something, and you think you're okay, yet the real ingredients that's going to make a difference is not there. To make a difference, you have to be different. You know, you have a glass of unsweetened tea sitting here on the table. You don't like unsweetened tea. So before you drink it, you've got to change its taste. But how do you change it? By taking a pitcher of unsweetened tea, pouring more of the same stuff in the glass? No. To make the glass different, you've got to add something different. Sugar, lemon, ginger ale. In order for us to make a difference in the world, we've got to add something, something, that, something different. We've got to, something that will actually create a change, a positive change, which means before we can make an impact out there, we've got to be different ourselves. First of all, we've got to come to Jesus and allow Jesus to add something worthwhile to our lives so now he can use us to add something worthwhile to the world around us. Down in Cincinnati, there's this small group one night after a Bible study uh, they, they wanted to continue on with the conversation and, and visiting so they went to a big boys for dessert and as we were sitting around the table and visiting with each other they couldn't help but notice the worried look on the face of their waitress so the next time she came by the table said hey everything okay and the young lady just you know began to open up and says well honestly it's kind of hectic tonight our dishwasher there in the back our dishwasher, he got upset. He quit right in the middle of his shift, which means now in addition to waiting on all the tables, everybody else has got to pitch in and help and take a turn and go back there and wash the dishes. And with all the people we got in this place tonight, i got to be honest, things are a little overwhelming. Well, their Bible study that night had been on the topic of God's love and how we need to show that love in practical ways to others. So all the people are sitting there at the table kind of looking at each other, nodding their heads, and saying, here's a chance to practice what we preach. So they finished their pie, they paid the bill, and they sprang into action. The men went to the back, and they started washing the dishes. The ladies started walking around the restaurant, gathering up the trash, picking up the dirty dishes. And it wasn't long before they had the whole situation under control. Well, the waitress, she comes back to the kitchen and said, Aren't you the guys from table 10? What are you doing back here? And one of them spoke and said, Well, we had a Bible study tonight. And in the Bible study we learned it's better to show God's love than just talk about it. And we thought, Hey, here's a perfect opportunity to do that. 
And the waitress smiled and said, well, that's wonderful, but I'm not sure you're allowed to do this. I better go talk to my boss. So she went off, and a couple minutes later, the manager of the restaurant comes back in with his three-ring restaurant policy handbook, flipping through the pages, and tell me again what you're doing here. Well, we're just a Bible study group. We saw you were short in help. We just wanted to pitch in and do something to make a difference. And the manager said, hey, that's wonderful, but I can't pay you for this. And everybody said, we're not here for pay. We just want to help. A few minutes later, they finished their job. They had everything looking clean and walked out. And as they left the restaurant, heads turned. People smiled. Strangers began to talk. Who were those people? And why would they help like that? Something different happened in the building that night. Something very different. Something that nobody else was expecting. Why? Because someone different had come walking into the restaurant. A group of people who'd spent time in the company of Jesus. Listen, when Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, he means you are here to add something to this world, something wonderful. But before you can make a difference in this world, first of all, you've got to come to Jesus and allow him to impact you. And as he impacts your life, now he's going to begin to use you to make an impact on your world.